Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. This morning we are continuing our study through this gospel, and as we noted last week, we find ourselves in what is known as Jesus' mission discourse. Matthew records five major blocks of Jesus' teachings, each with a different theme, and chapter 10 here is Jesus' mission discourse. It might beg the question, though, what do we mean by mission? What are we talking about when we talk about mission? Well, at the end of this gospel, after Jesus had finished his great saving work and had laid down his life to save billions of people across the centuries, after he had raised from the dead, he gave this final mandate to his disciples. You know this, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is the last thing Jesus says in this gospel. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he gives this promise, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to notice in that, the mandate to go and make disciples of all the peoples of the world is as valid today as the promise that supports it. The promise being, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That promise still holds because it's not the end of the age. Jesus has not come back yet, so the promise is still valid, which means that the mandate it upholds is still valid. So until Jesus returns, the promise holds, and so too does the mandate. Jesus commands us, Covenant of Grace Church, to go and make disciples. That's the mission. So back to Matthew chapter 10, this is Jesus' largest teaching on our mission, and I want you to see this, it's his largest teaching on our mission, and yet, got your Bible open, you can look at it, only verses 1 through 15 really lay out the mandate, what we looked at last week, that Jesus sends us out to proclaim the gospel and help the hurting. Jesus takes these 15 verses, first 15 verses only, and a couple of them are just a list of names. He takes that much to spell out the mandate, and then he takes a whole other 27 verses, which are actually a much larger section, not just in count, but in volume, each verse. 27 verses to lay out the cost and the blessings associated with this mission. So today we're only going to look at eight of these verses, verses 16 through 23, just eight verses, but I think that there's plenty here for us if we really wrestle 
with what they mean for us. This passage is very sobering to me because for 2,000 years, millions of Christians, the vast majority of them being unnamed people, whom the Bible says this world is not worthy, millions of Christians have put their lives at risk to reach the lost with the only message of salvation. And Jesus is calling us in this passage, through this passage, He's calling us to join them to make that risk. So please follow along now as I read our passage. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 23. This is the Word of God. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. May the Lord bless now both the preaching and the believing of His Word. There's a sense in which this text relates most directly to the twelve apostles that Jesus sends out here. We can see this in several places in this text. One of them, in the potentially perplexing comment Jesus makes in verse 23, You'll look with me at that one again, verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What does Jesus mean here uh, when he talks about the coming of the Son of Man? I don't believe he, he means here that this is a reference to his second coming. Because then this verse would, would not make any sense. In 2,000 years, surely we can make it to every town of Israel. So I don't think that's what he's saying. So what is he saying? Well, just like the New Testament speaks of the coming of the kingdom of God in in several stages and several manifestations, it can be helpful to think of the coming of the Son of Man in in several stages and manifestations. He he came to the first first time to die. Uh, In one sense, he came again when he was resurrected from the dead. He also came in judgment in the destruction of Jerusalem, judgment on on the country of Israel, his people. 
uh, in AD 70. Uh, He has come in power from time to time in Great Awakenings, and he will come finally in visible bodily form at the end of the age. So you can refer, the Bible refers to Jesus coming in, in kind of different expressions and manifestations. And so I take Matthew 10.23 to refer to Jesus' coming in judgment on Israel in AD 70. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, which happened in a decisive way 40 years later when Jesus came in form of the Roman army and destroyed the temple. So he's saying, you're on a timetable here. And this is just one of the indicators that this text relates most directly to the 12 apostles that Jesus sends out and the mission they had immediately and then for the next 40 years to establish a church. And yet, having said that, this does not mean this passage is irrelevant for us. What Jesus says about the cost and the blessings of the mission in these verses is still true today. And his main point here is crystal clear Be a fearless witness in the face of danger. Really, the rest of this passage, that's the big idea spanning into the rest of chapter 10. Be a fearless witness in the face of very real danger. Now this passage speaks pretty powerfully for itself. I think it speaks powerfully. I think it speaks pretty clearly. It doesn't need a whole lot of comment. Jesus spells out very concretely the cost of our mission. He doesn't want anybody taken by surprise. Now, reading this, I was reminded at one point in thinking about this passage of uh, the Italian Giuseppe Garibaldi. You may have heard of him. He's back in the early 1800s. Italy wasn't wasn't a, a united country yet. They were ruled by foreign powers. And Giuseppe was a, a revolutionary, one of the revolutionaries who led his country in revolution to, to unite them and, and get them their freedom and independence. And so he's considered a, a favorite hero in Italy. And he has a, a really famous quote where he, he called his people to fight. And, and this is what he said to them. I offer neither pay, no quarters, nor food. I offer only hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles, and death. Let him who loves his country with his heart and not merely with his lips follow me. To which all the men in Italy said, Yes! I offer neither pay nor quarters nor food. I offer only hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles, and death. Let him who loves his country with his heart and not merely with his lips follow me. Would you, if you were there, would you have gone? Or say this was the American Revolution. Would you have gone then? I bring this up because it doesn't seem that different, in one sense, from what Jesus calls us to in our passage. He lists a number of of costs. Giuseppe was very honest. No pay, no quarters, no food, hunger, thirst, forced marches. Jesus is just as honest about his mission that he sends us on. First, there's the cost of being arrested by authorities. So Bible's open, verse 16 and through 18. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocence as doves. Beware of men, for they will 
deliver you over. There's very dark overtones in that word. It's, it, it means, it gets the idea of betrayal. It's, it's the same word that Matthew used of Judas, who delivered over or betrayed Jesus. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. There's the cost of being arrested by authorities. Um, Bert just shared with me that, uh, an update he received this week uh, uh, from one of our partner churches in Belarus um, where a pastor there um, in the church that we partner with, a pastor and his wife were arrested this week for Christian activity. And they, they let go the husband, but they still have the wife in jail. Which I don't know the ins and outs, but to me seems like a different way of torturing the husband. And we were told that she'd been kept in a cell with eight other women, a cell that's designed to hold three women. And so... I invite you to pray for her family, pray for her, pray for the Christians in Belarus. I think it was Brenda that pointed out in prayer this morning, and pray for those other women in that cell, (laughs) that they would hear the gospel from this woman. There's the very real cost of being arrested by authorities. Second, there's the cost of family betrayal. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. I mean, this is almost unbelievable. Fathers and children will be so opposed to the Christian faith that they will rather have each other dead than believing it. But it made me think of um, John Piper has a son not following. Many of us know John Piper, Bible teacher. He's discipled many of us for years, and he has a son who is an ardent atheist with a famous uh, social media account where he's constantly trying to disabuse Christians and his father's teaching. Three, the cost of being hated by all. Verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So, it's not about being liked. People are going to hate us. Don't just think friendship evangelism. We evangelize people who hate us. And because they hate us, that doesn't shut us down. We don't see that as a closed door. We just accept that we evangelize a people who will hate us. Number four, the cost of being persecuted and driven out of town Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. I just think that's going to have massive implications. Some of you are going to need to think about this with your job because you're going to have morals thrust upon you 
transgender regulations that you cannot abide by as a Christian. And I think this is a word for you. Flee. You're going to have to move on. And then looking ahead just a little into the text Merrick's going to preach next week, number five, the cost of being maligned, uh, slandered, verse 25, uh, second half, if you have called the master of the house, be usable, or if they have, uh, how much more will they malign those of his household? They're going to call us names. And then the sixth and final one, the cost of being killed, verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So they can kill the body, and sometimes they do. And so, we, friends, we've got to be careful not to elevate safety in missions to the point where we assume that if one missionary, one of our missionaries, is killed, then we've made a mistake. That's not true. Jesus said very plainly in Luke 21, verse 16, some of you they will put to death. It's going to happen. So there are very real costs associated with this mission, very considerable costs None of it is to be taken lightly. Jesus is very serious about this. We must count the cost of following Him. They are considerable, and yet, so too are the blessings Jesus lists. So they're considerable as well. And so, one, the blessing of being sent by Christ Himself. Verse 16, Behold, I am sending you. Then you just hyperlink right over to Matthew 28. I am. Jesus himself sends us out. And for every real and true Christian, it is deeply satisfying to be sent out by the living and working Jesus Christ. Blessing number two, the blessing of being given words by the Spirit of God, verses 19 through 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it was not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father, your, your Father speaking through you. So, it's another wonderful blessing. It's a wonderful thing to sense, isn't it? To sense the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, giving you the words you need. Blessing number four, the blessing of experiencing God's fatherly care. Just look at verse 20. There's no throwaway words here. Verse 20, the second half. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of who? Your Father. You could have said God, but it's the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus makes explicit that there is one in heaven caring for you who is your father. You may have to leave father and mother to go on this mission, but you will always have a father in heaven who cares for you and provides what you need. Blessing number four, the blessing of salvation at the end of it all. Praise God for this, verse 22, second half, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So when all the costs have been paid, we will have the great end of salvation. We will be raised from the dead with no sorrow or pain or sin, and we will see Christ, and we will enter into his joy, and we will hear the words that in spite of all of our perfections, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's a blessing. And number five, the blessing of knowing the Son of Man is coming in judgment. 
It's a strange blessing, but it's a blessing. Verse 23, verse B, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This judgment, we already talked about it, foreshadows the great judgment of all peoples that is coming on the final day. And listen, for persecuted Christians, this is a real encouragement. That Jesus will come and vindicate His people. There are more blessings in the rest of this passage. We'll look at them in the weeks to come, but I think you're getting the picture. There are considerable costs, but there are also considerable blessings. So here's, here's my concern. I want to give you my concern, and I want to give you the challenge I feel as your pastor, because I'm not just the teacher of God's Word. Like I really feel that strongly. I'm not just the teacher of God's word up here, I am your pastor. And so, my concern is that you'll be tempted to do the same thing I do, which is to, is to kind of run a, a cost-benefit analysis here, kind of cost-benefit, cost-blessing analysis, and conclude that while these benefits, they, they sound good, these are good things, maybe they don't ultimately outweigh the cost. Like we would, we would never say that, but our life would say that because we don't actually leave here and take all the risk. Why? Because we don't really hope in all the blessings. We don't really value them like, like what they are. And so my, my concern is that running this cost-benefit analysis, we're going we're gonna to feel like it's all really actually weighted on the cost side, and then that will keep us from risking our life to reach the loss with the only message of salvation. And so my challenge, the challenge I have is, how do I help you see? How do I help us see? And how do I help us to feel? wish I could... I wish I could make us feel, Spirit, help us, to feel the immeasurable weight of Jesus' blessing. And how do I underline for us the great urgency of this mission? That's my challenge, and, and the only way I know how to do all this is I feel like I have to show you that while the costs are considerable, please note this, they are still only temporal. The costs of this mission are considerable, but they are only temporal, while the consequences of this mission and the blessings of this mission, they are eternal. So you see, you have to count the cost in light of eternity. So first, the eternal consequence of our mission, the eternal consequence of our mission, it's laid out for us right in verse 15, which we looked at last week, we can go back to here. Jesus says that for those who reject our message of Jesus, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. All right, so think about that. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Interaction time, what was it? 
Yeah, multiple different ones, right? Greed, inhospitality, homosexuality. It's homosexuality um, that is listed every time when the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are listed. So for instance, Jude 7 says that they had given themselves over to sexual morality and unnatural desires. Uh, Literally, it says they indulged sexual immorality and pursued different flesh or other flesh, which is to say flesh different than or other than the sexual immorality men were having with women. So he's talking about homosexuality. So on one level, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was essentially sexual morality and homosexuality, other things, but always those things. But on a deeper level, it was the rejection of the revelation of God and His will that is plain to all men. Natural revelation, the right order of things and desires and relationships and the law of God that is written on our hearts, Romans 2.14. So on a deeper level, their sin is they rejected the revelation of God in His created order. And I think that's what Jesus is actually really implying and getting at here when He says the judgments of those who reject Him, Jesus, will be greater than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest revelation of God that there is. And so rejecting Him is rejecting the clearest revelation of God possible. And that's why the judgment is so much greater. Because with greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. And so what was the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire and sulfur raining down on them from heaven, right? What will be the judgment of God on those who reject His Son? Eternal fire and sulfur. I mean, just let the the words of Jesus Himself from John 3.36 sober us to this reality. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise God, and we rejoice over that truth. But he also says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the consequence of our mission is eternal. The Bible teaches very clearly that the judgment, the coming of God's wrath is terrible, It is eternal, it is completely deserved, but it is escapable. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's the good news we go to proclaim, that God has made made us for himself, we sinned against him, we rebelled against him, his judgment is coming upon us, it is terrible, it is eternal, it is completely deserved, and yet in Jesus, it is completely escapable. So believe in Jesus that you might be saved, right? That's the good news we have. So the eternal consequence of our mission must be weighed. And then second, the eternal significance of Jesus' blessings 
the eternal significance of Jesus' blessings. This is what he's, in our verses, most clearly getting at in verse 22 when he says, but the one who endures the, the hatred and the hardship, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Ongoingly, forever. That's so much bigger than just this life. The blessing goes on for eternity, salvation forever. And it's, it's that which makes the joy of the Lord our strength now. That they may kill our body. Praise God, they can never kill our soul. I once heard Piper preach a sermon calling his people to move into the city where the needy are, into the hard places. And his exhortation was, all they can do is kill your body. Which is such a Piper thing, such a Bible thing, but not an American thing. See, there's an eternal perspective that informs our mission. And so, let me try to help you think about all this with with something of an illustration, okay? So, think about it like this. This life is a dot. Just imagine a dot. If you're taking notes, dot. And extending from that dot is a long line extending on forever. If you're taking notes, just make the line go to the end of the page. You don't have to keep drawing it for the rest of the sermon. That little dot is your life on earth. And that line is your eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now some say there is no line, that there's no eternal life. Death is the end. You may believe that. But the Bible makes very clear that's a miscalculation of enormous consequence. Your dot, a life is a dot with a long line extending on forever. But the reality is that even those who believe in eternal life, most of us are living only for that dot. It's the dot that occupies our attention all the time. Here's a good question each of us can ask ourselves in the middle of any given day. You can text each other this. Hey, are you living for the dot or are you living for the line today? But here's the point. The only way it makes any sense at all for us to count the cost in following Christ is if there is something more than we can fit into little dot lives. Something that is weightier than dot-type stuff. Something that is bigger and will one day prove to be more real than dot stuff. So that it is only by following Jesus and living for Jesus and sharing Jesus that the dot is kept from being empty and the line ends up being one of everlasting joy and not the other way around. So you see, what I'm, I'm saying, friends, is... is What I think Jesus is saying here is this world is not safe for Christians. 
That's what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 10. Jesus is saying, verse 16, that he sends us out as sheep among wolves. This world is not safe for Christians, and the only things that make sense of the cost we're called to bear for his sake is if there is more to this life than what we might live for in a little dot-like existence. We need an eternal perspective. All right, I've only got a few more minutes to focus this on, I think, Something else we need to see in this passage, the last part we need to see, is, is there are, Jesus sends us out, but he gives us four instructions in this passage. And so, bear in mind, the consequences of our mission are eternal, the blessings promised are immeasurable, and yet the temporal danger is still very real. And so Jesus sends us out with four instructions in the midst of that danger. And I want to end our time working through these. First, be wise and innocent. First, be wise and innocent. Uh, verse 16, Behold, I'm sending out a sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I think about this verse more and more in our day. I think it's safe to say it's, it's never been so dangerous to be a Christian in our country as it is today. And barring the Lord doesn't bring some kind of revival, which he can. Let's remember that. He has the Great Awakening, the Reformation, the Welsh Revival, the New York prayer meetings. So he can. Let's not give up. We have a living hope. But should he choose not to, it's getting darker in our country for Christians. And Jesus instructs us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Okay, so how are serpents wise? Here's how I think they are wise. They hide themselves. They're pretty good at it. That's their wisdom. I remember reading one commentator this week. I don't remember if it was Calvin. I don't remember. Somebody said, snakes know that no one likes them. <laughs> and so they don't show themselves. <laughs> uh, that might be a reading a little bit into much more than a, a, a snake thinks, but I think it's essentially the right point. And I think Jesus is saying in this, avoid unnecessary trouble. Avoid unnecessary trouble. And so, again, this is, again, I'm not just a teacher of God's word, right? I am your pastor, and so I want to speak pastorally to you. Okay, listen, um, we have a politically conservative-leaning church. That's where you are. You also have special interests and passions. Everybody does, right? So I'm just trying to speak to you all. Be careful that you are not taking stands and being loud about things that bring unnecessary conflict. I was with um, Jeff Perswell, the dean of our, our pastor's college, and really a, a friend and a, and a mentor in so many ways uh, to me and to most of the pastors in Sovereign Grace. And 
I was with him recently and talking with him about cultural engagement, and, and uh, it was just a conversation, but he had this line that I just thought, that's it. That's wise as a serpent. I didn't want to say that because I think it feels like an insult. <laughs> that's wise as a serpent. Um, but it's meant as a compliment. He said, I always want to reserve my greatest expression of passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I always want to reserve my greatest expression of passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thought, that's, that's how we should think. There should be a hierarchy. Kind of next, like hierarchy of passions and things I care about and hierarchy of my passions next to them. And right at the top should be the gospel of Jesus Christ gets my greatest passion. And right under that needs to be what Jesus cares the most about. And so like conservative politically, right, let's speak into that for a minute. Like pro-life and high taxes, or low, low taxes, if you want to say it that way, they're not equal. Right? Or like pro-life causes and mask mandates, not equal. And so there should be a hierarchy to what we are loud and passionate about. I'm not saying don't care. I'm saying be wise as serpents. Don't make unnecessary trouble. Remember, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You represent Him and His agenda. So, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, let your conduct among wolves be blameless. Don't give them any excuse other than that they hate Jesus. Don't be abrasive. Don't be inconsiderate. Don't be belligerent. Don't be rude. Don't be immoral. Be, be innocent as doves. All right, number two, bear witness. Bear witness. I got to pick this up. We looked at verses 17 through 20 several times, so I, I'm not going to repeat all that. Um, but I do, want you, I do want to point out the purpose for persecution in this world. Jesus gives it to us right here. He says in verse 18, it's so that you can bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So God's purpose in persecution is that we'll, it will give a platform to our witness. If we are wise as serpents and innocents as doves, and if we're going, as we saw last week, to serve the suffering, to heal the sick, nurse the dying, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, and beyond that, all we're doing is preaching the gospel... In other words, if we are decent citizens, really good neighbors, and our only fault is we're excited about Jesus, then when the wolves tear into our bodies, people are going to take notice. And this has been true throughout the history of the church. God used persecution to give us a platform to bear witness to Jesus. And then not only that, but one of those blessings, those promises, is that Jesus will give us, the Spirit will give us, verse 19 and 20, words to speak in those moments. So you don't have them now. You can't prepare for them. They're not something you can get ready in the barrel, so you got it when it's time. No, this is something that He gives you when that persecution comes, and only if you step into the persecution. And so we see this in Acts time and time again, and he seems to do this repeatedly in the history of the church. For instance, there's Agthanis, which is the first recorded woman martyr of the Christian church. She was being led to the place of her execution, and 
We're told that she started to give away the clothes that she was wearing to the poor on the way to her execution. And then as she hung there, burning over the fire, she cried out, Lord Jesus Christ, help me because I am enduring this for your sake. And witnesses report how moved the crowd of pagans were for her suffering, her witness. Or there's Hugh Latimer, Oh, that we would have missionary men. Oh, that our sons and all of us would have the heroes of these missionary guides like Hugh Latimer, who said to his friend Nicholas Ridley as they were both about to be burned at the stake for their faith, he said, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle in England that by God's grace shall never be put out. Play the man, Mr. Ridley. Friends, we could go on and on with examples of how God provides for his saints in times of trial. They don't all have amazing sentences like that that we remember, but so many of them do. But like I said, of course, to receive this provision, we have to get out there and suffer persecution. Number three, Jesus says, endure hatred. Endure hatred. Look with me at verses 21 and 22 again. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and hate them or have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so the Christian response to persecution is to endure, to not give up, to not give in. Even when we suffer persecution from our own family, we don't stop. And this taps into passages like Romans 5 and James 1, where suffering produces endurance, which produces Christ-likeness. All right, fourth and final, fourth and final instruction Jesus says is advance the mission. Advance the mission. I, I, I wanted to say positively what Jesus expresses negatively in verse 23. Verse 23, he says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. By which I believe he means keep advancing the mission. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So Jesus means here that when we're persecuted in one place, we advance on to the next. We don't stop. We just keep going. We move on because judgment is coming. So there's an urgency to our mission. The time is short. The laborers are few. So when we're rejected, we don't take a break. We just keep on going. We move on to the next place. We see this repeated in Acts. For instance, in Acts 8, we're told there arose just a, a huge persecution, a great persecution against the saints in Jerusalem. So what did they do? They fled to the neighboring towns and region preaching the gospel in all of them. Same thing happens to Paul several times. He's persecuted, he's stoned, or he's beaten, or he's chased out of town. What's he do? Moves on to the next and keeps on preaching the gospel. So Christians don't give up. We, we have to move on. And that means we may have to part with old friends or maybe even with family, or as I alluded to earlier, maybe we have to change our jobs, but we do not stop. We keep going because the consequences are eternal and the blessings are immeasurable. This fallen world is not safe for Christians. Jesus promises that the mission will be difficult, we will be resisted, we will be ridiculed, we will be rejected, but he doesn't let us off. He 
He doesn't let us off, and He does not promise to protect us from persecution. We will have to suffer as He suffered. And yet this reminded me, and I want to, I want to close with this, this reminded me of C.S. Lewis's book, a scene in it, um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. So I'll close with this. Aslan, the great lion, do you remember the story, appoints two children and a marsh wiggle, which is a kind of froggish-like man named Puddleglum. Love Lewis's writing. A marsh wiggle named Puddleglum to go and find the good Prince Rillian and to free him from the enchantments of an evil witch. And Aslan warns them of the difficulty of the mission, but he gives them four signs to help them find the prince. Only the expedition proves harder than the two children and the marsh wiggle could have imagined, and so the trio end up missing the first three signs. Only one sign remains. They will know the prince by this. He will be the first person they meet to ask them to do something in Aslan's name. So in their story, their hope is dim. They are, the trio is, is, is trapped underground in an evil kingdom. Uh, they cannot escape, and there is a knight who appears to be insane. That It said he raves so violently every night, he must be tied to a silver chair. And as it happens in the story, the trio witness this one evening. The ravings begin, but they find that they are actually pleased for help. The knight insists that he is not insane, but that an evil queen keeps him under a spell by day and then ties him to a chair at night when he is actually sane. And this night, of all nights, she is away. And so he begs them, saying, if you have any pity, cut my cords and set me free. You are not her subjects. Free me now and I am your friend, otherwise your mortal enemy. Oh, by the bright sky above, by the great lion, by Aslan himself, I charge you. And so there it is, right? They recognize the fourth sign. He asked in Aslan's name, but they're not sure what to do still. Does the sign count if it's uttered by a mighty knight who might be mad? Because if he's insane, he might kill them. And so one of the children cries, if only we knew what to do. And then to this, Puddleglum rises to the occasion and replies, I think we do know. And the other child asks, do you mean everything will come out right if we do untie him? To which Puddleglum answers, I don't know about that. Aslan did not say that would happen. He only told us what to do. That fellow may kill us once he's up, but we must still follow the signs. So they set the night free and found that he was indeed Prince Rillian and the object of their quest. Puddleglum's right. There's no promise everything will come out right in this life if we go on this mission. 
and follow Jesus' instructions. Jesus has sent us on a mission that he spells out will be very hard. But still we must go, faithfully following the instructions he gives us. This is how we live for the line and not the docked. And only then will we find the object of our quest, which is Christ himself in faith. He is the end of his mission. We gain. Let's pray. Father, I'm very sobered by these words. We would like a sermon every week that just picks us up, thrills our soul, and gets us excited about the week to come. Like the kids in the story, we just want to know everything's going to work out all right this week. But you don't make promises about this week. You make promises about eternity. Because you don't make promises about this week that everything's going to turn out all right. You do make promises that you will be with us and you will care for us and you will provide for us. But the reality is, is you send us out on a mission this week and next and the next until you take us home or return in judgment. And so I pray for a renewing of the mind out of this passage this morning, Lord. That you send us out into a very dangerous world. And I was so struck by this this morning, praying for this church. Just thinking about how much we are your children and you love us and you have adopted us as your own and you gave up your own son for us. Your love for us is unquestionable. And I think about my own kids who I love so deeply and I would never send them into danger's way if I could, if I could help it. And so that you send us out into danger just tells me, man, the consequences must be so dire. And yet the promised blessings, so good that it's worth the risk. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to think like you think, feel like you feel. I pray that you would give us a heart for the lost like you have. I pray that you would make us greater risk takers for the sake of the lost sheep and for the glory of your fame. And I pray that our testimony would be whatever comes in Christ. It is totally worth it. Help us to give up our life and find that in doing so, we gain it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.
All right, let me invite you to stand now.